Okay, so Kirsty, you've been reading some of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and um, asking questions about breathing. Um, the first thing that we can notice is, is that um, whether we get the exact details or not, that the important thing is, is that breathing is, the, is important. That's the that's the the, the basic point, <clears throat> and that many meditation systems miss the power of the breathing and the power of the knowledge of the breath and the power of the uh, let us say dealing with learning and then learning to control the breath, um, and that. This um, is a very powerful uh, process uh, because the breathing itself is directly related to emotions. An example of that is freezing with fear. And that when we freeze, we actually stop breathing. That's what freezing is all about. Um, and so generally when we're in fear, we're not breathing very well. Uh, and yet, that mechanism of the freeze is also a preliminary step to fight and fright. So that also means that um, there's a lot of chemical stuff going on inside the body that has to do with what's going on in the mind and in the feelings. That basically these things are really interconnected and learning about each one of them individually will then help us to see how they are interconnected. Now, when we're little kids, little children pay a lot of attention to the body. They've got to learn to control it generally up to a point so that the kid can learn to stand up and walk around. Uh, in some societies, they have to learn to throw and catch. And in other societies, that's verboten. But generally, it's a lot of motor skills and many of those things are kind of painful. So what happens is, is that uh, we as children get diverted then from the kind of playfulness that incorporates the use of the body into intellectual things that are associated with school. And then they kind of separate recess from school take the children out of their body and put them into ABCs, one, two, threes, put them on a desk, put them into books. And then we, uh, in paying attention to that, as we grow up into adulthood, many of the kids don't pay much attention to the body at all. The only two examples or three examples would be children who go to art school, children who are in uh, musical classes or those that are involved with sports. They still have body, but that leaves quite a lot of kids out with their body. And so as an adult, the body seems to be one of the forgotten elements. And, and so bringing the body back into our awareness so that we can start to live in the body and begin to watch and monitor the breathing, which means that this actually the body now is the doorway back into reality is the doorway back into this present moment and we pass through uh the doorway into the here now by coming then out of our conceptualized world that we've been constructing and living in and so coming to the body then is actually something that we're going to be doing that's bringing us back into reality the reality of this present moment because when we're thinking about the past, even if it's five minutes ago, or thinking about something that needs to be done tomorrow, or thinking about, let us say, politics or sports or something that's happening in another country or another city, or um, that happened last week or next week, all of these are conceptualizations. They're not what's happening in the here now. And that our Western society, our capitalistic society, is actually very conceptually oriented. 
and that part of that conceptually oriented in the sense that we live in concepts or ideas or how things should be instead of living in the world and much of that um, conceptualized world is actually critical thinking. The critical thinking, which means this is good, this is bad, that's great, that's terrible. I like this, I don't like that. But in fact, we could say that that part of the mind, the critical part of the mind, is original sin. Now, I'm kind of playing with words when I say the original sin because the guys who talk about original sin, they generally refer to Adam and Eve. Right. <clears throat> and Adam and Eve invented critical thinking. Right. Yeah, I think and that is the whole story, right? Yeah, they became self-aware and started thinking about their thinking of too much. Right? Well, actually, they had to eat of the now and to eat of the fruit. Now, mm-hmm. eating of the fruit means having to put up with the results. That fruit often is uh, referred to as a result like the fruit um, that we have from a plant is the fruit of the plant or the result or uh, of the plant or the gift of the plant and so uh, we also use that word like the fruit of the loom the fruit of the loin the fruit of labor so we're using the word fruit that way and yet the christians have been looking for a little fruit they've been looking for apples and bananas i think <laughs> <clears throat> where the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil means that we have to put up with our critical thinking. And here they are, Adam and Eve, living in paradise, and they go around criticizing it. I like that tree, but I don't like that one. And when we start to criticize paradise, what we start to do, like this tree, I live in paradise here, but this tree's got a yellow leaf on it, and I don't like yellow leaves, so I'm going to pull that tree up. And if I keep doing that, I'm going to literally destroy the paradise with, without just losing it in my own mind. Okay, so this is basically what's going on is to come back into the paradise. And the way that we do that is by bringing the body uh, through the door first, literally. And so starting to pay attention to the body we begin to uh, <clears throat> slowly come to understand that, hey, man, the body is actually working. It's doing its job. Let me start to appreciate actually how marvelous this human body is. That we begin to start to breathe and play with it and uh, expand the lungs and drop the diaphragm and raise the shoulders, doing all of that on an in-breath. And then as we breathe and out breath, it's like an empty bag or a balloon that the air comes out of it. Just, And so um, this is the kind of breathing then that relaxed, slowed down, but not uh, forced at all. That in in fact, um, if you start to, to force it, then we're not practicing correctly. And one of the ways of knowing that we're forcing the breath is because we get tired and we don't like it. But if you're practicing breathing well, then you actually enjoy every breath, Mm -hmm. allowing it to be, um, uh, let us say, life-giving, because that's what the breathing is. And as we breathe out, we also uh, put out a lot of uh, chemicals as an exchange much of it is carbon dioxide but there's a lot of other stuff that comes out in the air you know that by the way that carbon dioxide itself has no odor right and there are odors that come from bacteria in the mouth but there are other odors that come right out of the lungs and that um that stuff that comes out of the lungs is actually uh other kinds of poor poisons, broken up um, uh, amino acids and things like this. (laughs) And yet when we're breathing shallowly or normally, a lot of that stuff just stays accumulated in there. 
So taking longer breaths allow a better exchange of air so that we're getting in more oxygen and throwing out more waste products. So that would be kind of the scientific approach to what Bhikkhu Buddha Das is actually talking about. Well, I, I, this whole week I've uh, caught myself quite a few times, so I felt pretty good about that. And I immediately took a breath and it felt great. I mean, every time I did that, that was, it was just a really nice feeling, you know, so. Yeah. You know, we start to remember it often. Also, this is a skill that is to be developed and we use breathing in order to develop the skill of sati. And sati is, is the skill of remembering. And yet in the West, we have the idea uh, that we have to watch the breath continuously. And if the mind wanders away from the breath, we've done something wrong and we start to fuss at ourselves mm -hmm. rather than understanding, no, this is just the way that the mind works. And that if the mind does wander away from the breath, just never mind, just take a nice deep new breath and really enjoy it. Right. But regular people will start to fuss at themselves. Oh, you haven't been watching your breath. <laughs> well, I, I think uh, I, I kind of understand where that's coming from, because when I read that uh, book or pamphlet or whatever, it was essentially saying that eventually uh, the mind will attach to the breath. So it's probably the thing of I, I'm not there yet, right? I mean, I guess. Actually, you know. it's a little bit backwards. It's not that the mind by itself attaches to the breath. The, the intention and the task is to attach to the breath. Okay. All right. And that another way of saying it, rather than attach to the breath, we're going to use it in the sense of learning to control the breath. Okay. And what I mean by controlling the breath, that means that we're actually putting some skin in the game. An example of that is, is that you probably kibitzed or watched a child or some friend play a video game. Mm -hmm. And the person who's actually playing that video game has got skin in the game. He's got his hand on the mouse or whatever with the machine, and he's really into it. While the spectator can get distracted easily while the game goes on. Mm -hmm. All right. This is how most people practice Anapanasati as if they were a spectator watching the breathing happening, but at least as if something else was was doing the breathing. Mm. Like somebody else is playing a video game and all we're doing is watching it. Okay. So <clears throat> one of the ways then of understanding this more clearly is, is that you've got to put some skin in the game. You've How got do you do that? Effort. You've got to put some effort into it. Okay. Okay. And um, the effort kind of comes in two styles, but there is an effort that's needed to actually control the breath. If you're actually just watching the breath, it's very easy for the mind to just watch something else. And because of free association, the mind will wander away from the breath easily. But if we're intentionally controlling it and intentionally liking it, then by controlling it and liking it and paying attention to it and inspecting it, the mind will actually stay on the breath more. That's what you were referring to as attachment. And I'm referring to it now more of curiosity, interest, and the ability to uh, manipulate it, control it, work with it, uh, play with it. Mm -hmm. Well, that, do that does work. Your, your whole brightening of the mind thing, I kind of tried that with the breath thing, because I've heard you say, ah, that was a nice breath. So I, I've I did that and that act, that really works. It does keep my mind on the breath a lot longer than it would. My mind does eventually wander off, but I'm like, Oh, there it goes. So I try to bring it back and do another breath and, uh, and, you know, just, you know, talk, you know, talk myself into feeling good about the breathing in and the breathing out. And it, it works. That really works. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Yes, it does. It's an old <laughs> technique, been around for a long, long time, but it needs to be discussed correctly because it's easy to uh, to misunderstand because of language and translations and also uh, the Western mind. Um, uh, it's a little bit foreign as, as concepts, as foreign concepts. So uh, learning to do it correctly uh, is often making sure that we're getting the right directions in the first place. Right. All right. So putting some skin in the game, putting some effort into it and learning to control the breath. We can look at it like this, that if we're taking the effort actually to make some changes rather than just observing and letting it be by putting some skin in the game, we actually learn to control the breathing only because we're actually learning to control the mind. That we learn to control the mind at the same time and in that process this is what Bhikkhu Buddhadasa which is a little bit later in that book is will will mention about gladdening the mind but when he mentions gladdening the mind he will kind of say but this is the first thing that you need to do and <laughs> when I say the first thing I'm not talking about the first year of practice or the first month of practice I'm talking about uh, the first thing that we do when we wake up, hmm. okay, at that instant that we want to change the shape, the condition of the mind, uh, and that the Kabutadasa uh, uses the kind of the standard translation that's done in English using the word gladden, but we can also use the word brightening the mind. And what we mean by that also is making sure that the thoughts that we're having are wholesome thoughts, because most of the time our thoughts are either unwholesome or junk thoughts. And we don't have a lot of time spent having intentionally wholesome thoughts. So the wholesome thoughts go right along then with the wholesome breathing. And having wholesome thoughts while wholesome breathing, we're beginning to take control of the situation. And when we add the third ingredient of feelings so that we actually not just tell ourselves how wonderful it is and, and feel the air and the breath and, and that, we actually begin to feel how nice things are. This is kind of like the one-two punch of learning to control the body and learning to control the thoughts will allow us to learn to control our feelings. By basically talking ourselves into feeling good while we feel good <laughs> in the body, and that allows us to feel good emotionally. And when we can get that going, that's actually uh, gathering together the jhana factors so that we make the mind fit for work. We're getting the body energized through the breathing. We're cleaning out the pollution both in the blood and also in the thoughts. When you say fit for work, what do you mean by that? What work? Um, actually, that's a very interesting thing. I would go so far as in a joking, friendly opening salvo saying making the mind fit for work and the work to do is the noting that they talk about in the Mahasi method. Okay. And yet the and yet the Mahasi method, uh, they don't go through the stages of getting the mind fit for work. They just start with a mind unfit for work and give it the job to do. <laughs> yeah, I remember you saying that several times that, you know, uh, you're noting stuff but you're noting a lot of garbage and you need to clear that out first right before the yeah. noting begins right yeah yes and then so the the uh, uh the job that we have to do now is to note or to pay attention to things that happen one by one as they occur but in this regard because we've gotten the mind completely wholesome what we actually now have to note or what to look at or what to figure out is what the mind is like when it's functioning correctly. Okay. <laughs> or how the mind actually works. Because at other times then we can see, oh, 
that means that I should not go and do that because that's going to take the mind out of a functioning working condition into dukkha, which is unsatisfactory. So when the mind is working uh, correctly, when the mind is fit for work, that means the results are going to be satisfactory. And when we're doing things when the mind is not fit for work means the results are probably going to be unsatisfactory. Right. Well, I don't I don't think I've gotten to that point yet. I mean, I'm I'm working on it, though. <laughs> um, I'm noticing more things I, that, that's definitely happening and I'm and I'm pulling myself out of that. So, I mean, I'm I got that going on. <laughs> OK, so. Um, One of the things then we can understand is, is that everything that you could ever do with meditation, with Anapanasati, you can do it right now. And that in fact, that's the kind of the whole goal with it is not off into the future, but just rather right now. Okay. Practicing correctly right now, and we begin to get the confidence that if I can do it now, I can do it next time. And the next time just happened, and I'm doing it again. And if I can do it twice in a row, I can do it again. Okay, and so that doing it in the moment over and over again builds confidence. Doing it with the goal in mind of having a lot of failures along the way, but at least you'll eventually learn how to do it is a loser's attitude. Okay. The winner's attitude, hot dog, I got it. (laughs) Right. And this is what we're cultivating, cultivating of the be here now and whatever we're going to do, let's do it right now. Because now is the only moment there is. Anything that was ever done was done in some now. True. But all the plans, look how many plans have been made and they never got a now. And so that's so much for planning for you. That That's actually something that I uh, began to understand in the 1970s was the number of ideas that I had, even excellent ideas, computer programs, uh, database designs, all kinds of stuff. But the number of ideas that I have greatly exceeds the number of ideas that I could possibly put into um, operation. Some of the ideas that I would have would take a whole staff of people years to accomplish. But it was an idea. <laughs> right. I, I think that we can talk about that in the sense of that our reach is greater than our grasp that we can reach up and touch things, but we can't get up there to grasp it. All right, so what we're talking about here is that in fact, Western psychology, Western capitalism, the Western mentality is is to uh, reach for the stars. And the entire teachings of the Buddha is, let's get a hold of things, let's grasp what we can grasp instead of reaching for things that we can't touch. Or if we can touch it, but we can't grab it. Right. Okay. So this is where we're getting very, very practical. And what we can grasp is this present moment. All we can do is reach for or plan for the future. Getting better at it, as opposed to this is good enough right now. Right. Getting better at it is still being dissatisfied. Yeah, this is this is a tough part for me because, you know, as you're saying with the Western world, I mean, most of my life is done through planning. I mean, <laughs> and it really does have some good practical uses. Like if I don't plan out certain things, certain things are not going to happen in my life, which is also going to cause problems for me and my family. So uh, obviously it has some useful parts. It's yes. it's that's yeah. something you're you're pointing out something. I've heard students also say that kind of thing, like that 
if I was completely satisfied all the time, I'd never get out of bed. Right. My answer to that is, is that I'm satisfied and I can get out of bed. I can go find something to do, something that's interesting, right. something that's worthwhile doing. Right. <clears throat> okay, so that's kind of the same statement that you're making. And that um, it's all on a continuum. Maybe the way to talk about it is the middle path. And so when we're talking about being in the present moment and people say, does that mean I can't make any more plans? No, it means that when you're making plans, know that you're making plans and know that you can be making these plans in this present moment. Right. That you're still being here now, but most people get lost in their plans. Right. Well, no, you're right about that. I've noticed that all week where I'll uh, be focused on one thing and my mind will bring up another thing and then I, you know, I'll drift off into that until I say, whoa, wait, okay, let's take a breath. <laughs> but yeah. This is exactly what all of this practice is about is for you to get to know the mind. Mm-hmm. But a part of getting to know the mind also is to become friendly with it rather than abusive because it's not doing what you told it to do. Right. Because it's been untrained. It's almost like um, uh, an owner whipping a puppy because the puppy didn't come fully trained. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, the, and the owner of the dog doesn't bother to train the puppy. He just is angry because the puppy's not already trained. Yeah. Like, for instance, housebroken and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Uh, I've, so, I've seen many pet owners do that. It's terrible. <laughs> they, like the dog's going to train themselves. It's not going to happen. <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, the mind is not going to train itself either. It's just not going to happen. Right. And part of that training that we do with dogs, the, the professionals, those who really know how to do the dog training, every time the dog does something correctly, it's rewarded. Okay, so in Anapanasati, that means that every time that you're practicing correctly, part of that practice should be that you reward yourself, you nurture yourself, you comfort yourself, you actually get yourself into a nice state and then recognize that you're in a nice state and congratulate yourself for getting into a nice state. This is the part that's gladdening the mind. To gladden the mind means actually in a way of treating the mind as opposed to being critical with it. You should do this, you should do that, etc. So we're looking for coming out of the critical mind state into a nurturing mind state. That um, we could think of it actually as, as a parent. That Eric Byrne talks about it as in the sense of the parent, the adult, and the child ego states. And the and the parent ego state is where we have all the ways that things should be, the parenting. But there's two kinds of parenting. One is the critical parenting, and then the other is the nurturing parenting. And basically it happens this way, that when a child is born, they start off being nurtured. A tender infant will not survive if it's not nurtured. But somewhere between four and six years old, depending upon the society and other individual factors, everything changes for that child. He no longer is in a, a warm, nurturing environment being taken care of. Now he's mommy's little helper. He's a first grader. Up two, three, four, learn your ABCs, do your one, two, threes, learn to read, clean your room, put your cell phone down, do your homework. You know the nine yards of that one. Okay. <laughs> And so we are literally trained out of being nurtured and being nurturing into being, uh, let us say, a cog in the wheel. Mm-hmm. And now in meditation in Anapanasati, we're going to start reversing that process and coming out of that critical mind that we've learned because we, we turn that on. I mean, it's okay to be critical of the world. But we turn that on our inside and we start being critical of ourselves on the inside. We often become our own worst enemy, literally, not because of making foolish decisions. 
because we're treating ourselves inside with the thoughts we have critically. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so now the the actual practice is is to take that effort to change, literally change the way that we're thinking or change the kind of thoughts that we're having. And we want to change and have the new thoughts that are actually associated with what we're doing in the present moment. And and for many people with the way that we're practicing intentionally, the only thing we're doing is breathing. So let's pay attention to that. Okay, this is where we're going to put our um, focus or awareness rather than in the past or into the future. We're just going to be here now and have thoughts that are nurturing thoughts, nurturing ourselves right now. Like, wow, I can relax. Wow, there is nothing to do. Wow, this is the job well done. That in fact, we need to look at life right now is when we take an out breath and that sigh and the throwing out of the unwholesome thoughts that can be considered now the job well done. The job that needed to be done has been done. And we can relax. Knowing and complimenting ourselves for having done a good job just now. And what was that job? Throwing unwholesome critical thoughts out and nurturing. And in fact, congratulations and uh, saying a job well done. That's nurturing. Mm-hmm. Say, oh, no, you've got more work to do. That's critical. And we spend far too much time in critical thinking and not much time in nurturing thinking. And if we get uh, uh, into practice, we spend far more time in nurturing thinking and less time in critical thinking. And we're a whole lot happier and we still get everything done. And so this is the, the, uh, the whole point about one's right effort. This is a part of the Eightfold Noble Path. But in fact, we can go back to that is sati is to remember. And we want to develop that skill. Well, it, it's kind of funny like that, because if remembering or waking up is the skill to be developed, then in order to wake up or order to remember, that means that we have to come out of being asleep. Right. Okay wake up or to remember means that we're coming out of a state of forgetfulness that's a standard state the mind is like that all the time and yet meditators when they see that their sati comes and they remember they start to hate themselves for the fact that before they remembered they had were in a state of forgotten right you're not supposed to forget yes you are because the skill that we're developing and the skill to wake back up. The normal state of mind is, in fact, an instinctual state of mind. That's our uh, that's our uh, default position. And that uh, one of the ways of, of thinking about that is, is that the frontal cortex is kind of like a supercomputer and it takes a whole lot more energy, a whole lot more effort, as it were. And we need that extra oxygen in order to oxygenate and get the front part of the brain going. And when it doesn't function correctly, because it's not, it's either actually been uh, exercised beyond the point or it's not getting enough oxygen, and then we use the word tired, and we all, and generally people go around <clears throat> their whole lives <clears throat> kind of in a state of tired. Mm-hmm. But by breathing well, we begin to energize the, uh, the body, begin to energize the blood, which means we begin to energize that frontal cortex also so that it can be woken up and put to good use for a a short period of time, and then it's going to go back asleep again. You probably heard that people use about 10% of their brain. Mm -hmm. That's an old saw. A better way to uh, say that is no, everybody knows how to use their own mind completely to full capacity. They only do it about 10% of the time. (laughs) (laughs) And the rest of the time, we're on automatic pilot. Right. 
And so we want to practice coming out of automated pilot and turning the lights on. So basically, instead of focusing on the light itself, we're going to start flip, uh, focusing on flipping that switch to turn it on. That's the sati. We want to develop sati as the skill to remember so that when we're out in life, whenever something happens, we want to have sati to come up so that we can handle the situation wisely rather than handling the situation instinctively. Mm -hmm. Okay, so basically instead of having this 10% of the time on and off just haphazardly, we're actually going to train the mind so that we can turn it on when we need it, turn it on when we want it, but allow it to be off like it normally is. And yet in meditation, a lot of people go around hating themselves because they have to keep turning it on. They expect that once I turn that light off, that line on, it's going to stay on. <laughs> and, and it doesn't happen that way. The mind doesn't work like that. It goes back to a default position. And uh, that part of the brain, by the way, is functioning all the time. The frontal cortex is just on and off. So we can see that with the EKGs and whatnot, but we also can understand that if the whole brain went to sleep at night, you'd stop breathing and die. Right. Your heart would stop breathing. No, there's something going on there that's there all the time, but it's a very, very low class primitive function. It's almost like when the computer is just sitting in idle, it's actually just down in the base of the operating system, just sort of doing a few instructions waiting for an interrupt. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then when the interrupt happens, now we got to go process that interrupt and that may then start an application. So this is the way that we're looking at that the mind is in kind of an idle state quite often. And that we want to, to, to develop the ability to turn it on. And to turn it on and to turn it on and to turn it on. So this is the sati that we're developing is the turning it on or the waking up to be here now. Okay. And so there's absolutely no reason for anyone to wake up and then feel bad because they had just caught themselves asleep. Right. That makes no sense. And yet every meditator does that. But Gawankas talks about it in the sense that when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind that it wandered away from the breath, just come back and start again. But normally what happens when the mind wanders away from the breath and the student sees that, they have a pity party. Oh no, poor me, oh, my mind wandered away from my breath again. I, this is so hard. This is terrible. Maybe this is not a good instructor or maybe this is not the right time for a meditation or all kinds of excuses come up. And while they're having all of those thoughts, guess what? They're still not practicing. They're just telling themselves what a failure they are. So <clears throat> we have to watch for that so that when the mind does wake up, we can say, hot dog, glad to see you, boy. <laughs> Instead of saying, where have you been? Because where have you been is critical. Hot dog, I'm glad to see you. That's nurturing. Right. Okay, so this nurturing quality of nurturing the mind, of saying everything is okay, everything is fine. What a wonderful day. What a wonderful world. This is... Uh, no place to go, nothing to do, uh, everything's all right, everything's fine, not a worry in the world. These are wholesome thoughts that almost like a, you sing yourself a lullaby to wake up mm -hmm. instead of singing ourselves in the childhood lullabies to go to sleep by me. And but basically, when we sing a child a lullaby, that what that does is that puts the child into a state of safety and security. And that's what we're looking for is to get ourselves feeling safe and secure. So the kind of things that we can talk about is hot dog. There's no there's no alligators on the floor. There's no crocodiles. There's no spiders coming from the ceiling. 
There's no tarantulas on the keyboard. Everything's all right. Nothing dangerous here, and I can feel safe. Why is it, do you think, that in Western civilization, that fear seems to be the guiding principle behind everything? I don't know. <laughs> we built a society to come out of the jungle so that we could feel safe in our homes, in our cities, in our high rises. Because out in the jungle, it's a jungle out there. Except what we've actually built is concrete jungles. And the reason for that is because we took the boy out of the jungle, but we didn't take the jungle out of the boy. And so even though we have humans living in cities, they still have, they're terrorized as if they were still in the jungle. And many right. of them create their own jungle. So now that you're in that room, that room that you're in, it looks like it's very safe. It's not on fire. <laughs> That's pretty nice. Is that we sit here and feel in, insecure and not safe when the reality is, is that things are right now very safe. Right. So this right. is something that we can do with that is, is that talk yourself into feeling safe and secure because you actually are safe and secure. Now, is it OK to say that to yourself in specific? So if something pops oh, up specifically, a, yes, everything about a person, right here, you know, you can say that person's not even here right now. I'm here by myself. He's not here. Right. right. He's not dangerous because he's not here. Yeah, uh, nothing to worry about with that right this second, right? Yeah, okay. Yes, and and you can tell yourself that the way that you would tell a child that is frightened. Okay. Hey, there's no alligators here. <laughs> Let's go look in the bed. There's no, there's um, under the bed. There are no foxes. In the <laughs> closet, there are no bears. <laughs> And so we can finally just sit here and feel safe and secure. If we can feel safe and secure, the next level then would be comfortable. But this is a major, major point, and Bhikkhu Buddhadasa really, really understood it. Uh, and we even run the meditation retreats with this principle, that the student must be comfortable as well as feeling safe and secure in order for the student to feel satisfied. It's hard to feel satisfied when you're uncomfortable. It's True. really hard to be satisfied when you're terrified. <laughs> and so working at that level first, and by the way, these things, safety, security, comfort, and uh, satisfaction, are actually parts of the definitions of the Pali word sukha. When you look it up in the Pali dictionary, these are items that you find on the list, as well as these are items that you find in the idiopada, which actually the, the word idia is the same word that you've heard before in Sanskrit of cities, magical powers. Well, there actually are real powers. And that the real powers are the feeling of security, the feeling of safety, the feeling that you're on top of this, the feeling of um, uh, a winner, um, positive attitude. That attitude, in fact, is so powerful. I can do it is the winner's, mis uh, is the winner's attitude, and he's much more likely to be successful than the one who says, well, I'm not sure I can do it. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm afraid. I'm, I don't think I can do this. Okay. That's not a powerful position. So this uh, definition of the word sukha, the word sukha actually is the exact opposite of the word dukkha. In, not only in the Pali, but it's exact opposites in the Thai language. And one of my students who has a, uh, his parents are Gujarati, which is an area of India that's actually in the, uh, the Northwest. In that language, Duki and Suki are opposites. Hmm. Where Duki means trouble, unsatisfactory, unhappy. And Suki means comfortable, secure, uh, satisfied. So 
If we are in fact in a state of suki or sukha, then that means by definition of the word that we're not in dukkha. Right. That's the third noble truth. The third noble truth is to come out of our dissatisfaction and become satisfied. The satisfaction is actually the primary skill to be developed. And looking at it in the sense that it's a skill to be developed, that means that you have to have satisfaction, some of it, a little bit, in order to develop it. So it's much better to have a tiny little bit of satisfaction, but a lot of students are saying, I'm not satisfied with a little satisfaction. I want a lot. I don't want to feel just a little bit. I want to feel really good. And so I'm dissatisfied with feeling good. I want better. You see, that's critical thinking. But finding something that you can be satisfied with is the place to start. And then when we get that satisfaction, we can begin to let uh, intentionally let it grow. Like, wow, really, I really am satisfied. Wow, this is nice. I really do like this. Okay, so we work on becoming satisfied, which actually is the third noble truth. Because the first noble truth, dukkha, means that we're dissatisfied. The cause of dissatisfaction is because of critical thinking. When we start, when we start having nurturing thinking and come out of the critical thinking, then that third noble truth is that we can be in a state of satisfaction. We can be free from unsatisfactory life. And the method to do that is the Eightfold Noble Method, which is sati, right view, the right effort to change uh, our thought from an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought. And with that knowledge of doing it over and over and over again builds confidence which is the fourth item on the list, which is uh, samasankapa is the Pali word, and it's translated sometimes as right thought, sometimes as right intention. But a better translation for it is I have the right attitude. And you can understand that right attitude actually is the basis of right thought in the sense that if you have a certain kind of attitude, you're going to have thoughts that are associated with that attitude. If you have an attitude this different, then your thoughts are going to be different. An example of that is a 15 round prize fight has just finished and one of them won and the other one lost. One of them's got his hands in the air and the other one is on the floor face down with a pool of blood. Okay, that's the scene. (laughs) Fast forward 10 minutes and each one of these guys is getting a massage and while he's laying on the massage table, Each one of them is going to have, let us say, uh, a particular kind of thought, like it's time to retire. All right. So that's the context. Is the guy who won the fight going to have the same thoughts about retirement as the guy who lost the fight? Nope. Uh -uh. No, the attitude of that winner changes the way that we think. So this is where we've got to change the way that we look at things, change the way that we actually uh, see the world, which is this uh, new attitude. And the attitude is the attitude of I can do this. The attitude is, is I can wake up. I can. I can do this anytime that I want to. I can wake up and see how things really are. I don't have to stay asleep in my instinctual uh, automatic pilot. And as you know, uh, this people retreat to their instinctual automatic pilot, oftentimes because it's too much work or too much effort to actually look to see what's going on. An example of that is people who listen to, say, Fox News, and they hear a particular viewpoint and they get all afraid and everything. They don't then go do the research necessary to find out that what they've been just told was a lie and that is making people afraid intentionally, they will just operate out of that fear. We become kind of blind, dumb animals. We go along to get along. This is instinctual. It's called the herding instinct or the nesting instinct that we do what we're told to do. That in fact, the nesting instinct that each human has as part of his internal programming 
writ large becomes our society. Society is nothing but the nest that humans have built out of the planet Earth. And yeah, well, so, I mean, a lot of these things are uh, group survival strategies, I assume, right? I mean, it's, it's and they work. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, they are group survival strategies that maybe are overly used because things are not always a survival issue. True. That in fact, that's what fear is all about. Fear makes it a survival issue when in fact it wasn't a survival issue at all. The Texas legislature somehow sees that it's their survival issue to keep people from voting. It is a survival issue if they can't control uh, every teenage girl's visit to the doctor. Okay, this is, but it's not a survival issue. That's delusional, but the delusions are not worked out through um, research. They're dealt with emotionally with fear right okay so basically what the whole teaching of the buddha is is to wake up and do the investigation that we need to do in this present moment to figure out nothing's here to fear and people will watch the internet they'll watch uh fox they'll watch uh uh youtube or whatever like that and get really afraid of and and filled with fear and develop attitudes and go and do things when they could have turned that video off and taken a deep breath and said, I don't need to worry about that. That's not my problem. Right. People in Idaho, they can actually recognize that Texas is not their problem. Politics is not my problem. There's enough people out there in politics and they're all of them fussing and fighting. Do you think they need me in there fussing and fighting with them? Right. Better to stay out of politics because there's a lot of fussing and fighting and a whole lot of terrorizing and terrorism and terror going on in all of that. So recognizing and seeing that it's best to avoid politics until we can dabble in it without it, let us say, sticking to our fingers. Mm-hmm. That we can literally become above it. That whatever happens in politics, not my problem. If people did have that problem, they would have a whole lot less fears and worries. But everybody's in America. I mean, they, they work really hard to tell people, you got to vote. You got to put skin in this game. You got to go do this. I mean, those libs are absolutely terrible people. Or on the other side, those Republicans are absolutely terrible people. We can't let them be in charge of our lives, you know. And in fact, both sides are equally screwing everything up anyway. So it doesn't really matter who runs the place. The best thing to do is to stand aside. (laughs) Especially on a national level. Well, then we begin to see that if that's true at that conceptualized level, because actually, if you think about it, when you and I are sitting here talking about politics, we're only actually talking about concepts. Mm-hmm. And that when a Republican talks about politics in a certain concept, he's going to have different language than the Democrat who is talking about politics in concepts. Right. And we can conceptualize anything. So if we can conceptualize anything, one of the things that we could do is to stop conceptualizing things for a while and pay attention to what's actually going on. (laughs) Especially in this moment. So this is what Anapanasati is all about, is to come out of that critical thinking, that conceptualized thinking, thinking about politics, thinking about politicians, thinking about money, thinking about all of that kind of stuff, And to start thinking about, let us say, the limits that are real. One of the limits that's actually real is is that right now your whole world is in that room. Because you cannot see through walls. Right. 
Another way of looking at it is your whole world is right there in that chair. So all you have to do is just think about what's in your whole world. And that whole world is sitting there in that chair. Right. And and the other stuff that we would say would be the world out there is actually a world in here. There's no world out there. The only world that we actually have is the world of our own senses. That's our world. Everything else is a mentally constructed thing. Well, through my uh, investigations over the last couple of weeks, I've noticed there's been... uh... I don't I don't watch TV so I mean that's that's not a big issue for me but I I do notice that uh a lot of uh the thoughts that I've seen uh and caught involve kind of escaping the moment the present moment <laughs> you know there's a, there's a lot of uh let's try to get away from this present moment even though I mean like you said the, the present moment's usually pretty good like 90% of the time but it seems that <laughs> A lot of a lot of my time is spent trying to get away from that pretty good moment right there to go somewhere else or to get some excitement or to whatever you know I don't know. Mm-hmm. So. Right, so that that's that conceptualized mind, and so the point now is is to remember to wake up out of that. Right. Say, hot dog! I don't have to think about Aunt Susie. I don't have to think about George Bush. I don't have to think about Putin. I don't have to think about Donald Trump. I don't have to think about my taxes. I don't have to think about fixing the car. I don't have to think about anything right now. I can just sit here and relax. <laughs> and very few people spend time doing that on a regular basis to stop doing all of the doing and just sit and enjoy the moment. Many well, people practice meditation to get something out of it in the future. Yeah. Rather than recognizing, no, the practice of meditation is you sit here and you get all the benefits you're going to get that you can get right here, right now, knowing that in the process of doing that, you're actually developing skills so that it can only get better and better, and you can just remember more and more often. Right. Well, and then I assume you can start applying that with that feeling to when you actually are doing things, right? Because I, I have the same problem when I do things, is that while I'm doing them, I'm thinking about the next thing I'm going to be doing. Right. <laughs> you know, never do, right. Never, okay. never doing the thing I'm doing. I'm always thinking about the next thing I'm doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which means that you're not actually doing what you are doing now to the right. very best of your ability. Right. Because you're doing what you're doing now with half your ability and the other half of the ability is planning on the next job that you're only going to do half-assed. Right. There's a lot going on with that. In the Bible, there is a passage that whatever thy hand findeth to do, do with all thy mind, all thy strength, and all thy heart. Have you heard that passage? Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, okay. All right. This is basically what we're talking about. So, normally in operations, when we're out doing something in the world, We're only half paying attention to it, but we're out there doing it. And most of what's going on is we don't like it. We would rather be doing that that we're thinking about rather than doing what we're doing right now. So here we are doing something, but we don't like it. We're not enjoying it. And that's our style of life anyway. The right thing to do is to get out of that, to come into seclusion, to get the mind really fit for work. Get it get the mind really in a good state, happy, wholesome, um, uh, investigative, and then we can bring that kind of mind back to the task at hand and get it done happily. Now, it's also possible that while we're getting that uh, job done happily, we wind up going back into, I don't like it, and we recognize that waking up, oh, I'm not, I don't like this job right now, not this very moment. Like to say I'm halfway into an email and I come to, a, uh, and I get writer's block or I'm stopped or whatever like that. And I come to pause to a point of, I used to like writing this email right now, I don't. So the thing to do is to come back into seclusion, 
get the mind into a really, really good state again. And when your mind is really, really fit for work and very happy and willing to go, now we can go back and finish that task and do it well. Okay. And so uh, getting the mind fit for work means that now we can, in fact, put it to work. But most people, they say, oh, well, I can't get time. I don't have time to get the mind ready for work. I got to go do the work and I'm going to have to go do it unready. How many Olympic, Olympic stars win a gold medal in the Olympics without any training at all? None. None. <laughs> it does not happen. And right. yet, how many people are out there trying to get the job done and they've got no training? Everybody. <laughs> Everybody. All right. <laughs> and so a job well done actually means that a job is, is most likely going to be well done when the mind is fit for work. And if you don't like doing that job, your mind's not fit to do it. Right. Getting the mind fit for work means that you're eager to do that work, that you like doing that work, that you're willing to do that work. Let me at it. <laughs> Hold my beer. You know, this is this is the attitude. <laughs> and so it's not that we, we would stop doing everything, but rather over time with wisdom, we begin to now look at the things that we are doing with a wiser position of, wait a minute, was it really worth the effort to do that? Are there not better ways to do things? But that would be the third item on the list. The first item on the list is to get the mind fit for work. The second one, then apply that mind to the kind of work that, we're, that we need to do in this moment. And then the third one is, is to now that we have the mind really fit for work, can we find other work that the mind is fit to do, and that work is even more fit than the work that I was doing. That's interesting. Yes. <laughs> but the important point is, is to get the mind fit for work. By getting the breathing going, by getting the attitude changed, by getting uh, the mind gladdened, um, to to put out the right kind of effort, to know that the right effort, this is all this stuff on the Eightfold Noble Path. And basically what that means is, is that when we're practicing correctly, the mind is fit to work is a mind that's in that third noble truth. Okay. Okay. Not the first noble truth. Normally we do our work when, when the mind is still have dukkha in it. And we can actually get all the work that needs to be done happily. Right. So I hope that this kind of clears up the question about the breathing and uh, sati and that it's okay to forget because what we're building up is the skill to remember. Yep, very helpful. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah, you're... Yeah. Uh, all the talks that you've had with me, plus everything I've listened to, has really uh, opened my eyes to quite a few things, and I, I feel like uh, I'm making some progress here. So, <laughs> actually, don't think about making progress. Think about enjoying this moment. This moment is good enough. Yeah. Doesn't have to be compared to the last moment or the next moment. That right now, this is good. You're right. Yep. You're right. Yeah. Get yourself into that good state. I'll give you one last little story. And that is, have you ever heard of Pilgrim's Progress? Uh, I've, I've heard of it, but I never read it. Okay. The whole concept of a pilgrim is, is that he is in a journey to get to a holy site. Mm -hmm. My question to you is, what happens when the pilgrim gets to the holy site? Is he still a pilgrim? Is he still making progress getting to the holy site? Or has he actually arrived at the holy site? He's arrived, I guess, right? Right, okay. So if he <laughs> remains a pilgrim doing progress, that means he's got to leave this holy site and go off on a journey to go find another holy site. Right. 
but this one was good enough. And in fact, we've got a whole lot of pilgrims like that. That's what a real pilgrimage is, is moving from one holy site to another holy site to another holy site. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, if you find yourself in a holy site, why would you want to make any further progress? Because to make progress now means you have to leave the holy place that you're in. <laughs> so why not we just get ourselves into a really nice holy state, completely whole, and then we arrive. Now we don't have to make any more progress. <laughs> no more traveling needed. Yeah, no traveling <laughs> needed. Just sit down and relax because you're already in a holy place. Right. This present moment is all the holy we need. That's good. <laughs> Christopher, this has been delightful. I really enjoyed it. In fact, this hour has just flown by. Zip. <laughs> yep, it always goes quick when I was talking with you. But I really appreciate your time. Okay. Will you continue on? Continue to practice one moment at a time to wake up, to change the mind, to take a deep breath, and enjoy the heck out of it. I will. Thanks, Damara. Take care. We'll see, we'll see you soon. <laughs> okay, bye. Oh, by the way, have you... Uh, 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 we're, we're doing some um, actually Skype group calls on Saturdays and Sundays in the UK uh, on Sunday and uh, the US. I'll send you I, a link. I saw, yeah, yeah, I think you put up a link for me for the UK one, but I'm in the US. I don't have the US one. Okay, so. I'll send you one for the US also. That's going to be tomorrow night. I think it's Thursday. It, wait a minute, today Today, Today here is Friday morning, so it should be Thursday night uh, there. So tomorrow night. Yeah, Friday, Friday night U.S., right? Yeah. Friday night U.S., depending yeah. on the time zone. 7 Pacific and 10 Eastern. Okay, good. Yeah, I can be on there. That'd be great. Okay. Yeah, I don't have the link for that one. I do have the U.K. one, but that's that's I, way too early. That's yeah, like 4 a.m. or something. My time. So. Right after this call is finished, I'll send you the link. Great. Thank you so much. All righty. We'll All right. see you, Chris. Okay. Bye-bye. Right,